Welcome to the Diversity and Inclusion On Air podcast. This podcast is a program of the Association of American Veterinary Medical College's Diversity Matters Initiative. The podcast explores various issues related to diversity and inclusion in the veterinary profession and provides the AAVMC an opportunity for ongoing diversity programming to our member institutions as well as all veterinary professionals. My name is Dr. Lisa Greenhill, and I'm the Senior Director for Institutional Research and Diversity here at the AAVMC. On this podcast, we're going to be talking about the ways in which veterinary colleges have included diversity and inclusion content in the professional DVM curriculum. Now, this is something that many of us have been advocating for years, and it is more than just simply improving communication skills for new graduates, though that's certainly a part of the skill set that's necessary. What our goals really have been about is including diversity in the, in the curriculum is a way of teaching students about the intersections of race, ethnicity, sex, class, geography, and certainly many other demographic elements with the practice of veterinary medicine. It's about understanding nuance. It's about understanding how the lived experience of the client may affect the delivery of your medical care to the patient. So now a few years ago, the COE accreditation standards changed to include diversity and inclusion in a number of the accreditation standards, including curriculum. And as a result, a number of many colleges have found lots of different ways of making sure that their students get this content. So to discuss that today, I'm joined by three great colleagues and friends from AAVMC member institutions. So there's Dr. Alan Kennedy from North Carolina State University, Dr. Latanya Craig from Purdue University and Dr. Susie Kovacs from Western University of Health Sciences. Welcome to the show, everyone. Yeah, thank you. I am going to get us started. The first thing that we always do on the show is have our guests introduce themselves. So I am actually going to start in kind of the order of which folks signed on to the show today. So Susie, you're up. So thanks again for having me. I'm really actually excited to be here with Dr. Kennedy and Dr. Craig because I'm sure I can learn a lot from them. My name is Susie Kovacs. I'm an assistant professor of epidemiology at Western University of Health Sciences. I use the pronouns she, her, hers, and I am, I guess, the de facto diversity and inclusion person at Western at this point. Great. Now, Alan... Yeah, thank you, Lisa. And I appreciate your um, having this podcast. It's something that we need to uh, have more of. My name is Alan Kennedy. I serve as the Director for Diversity at NC State College of Veterinary Medicine. Some also may know me from my other hat that I wear as a small ruminant and camelid uh, mobile private practitioner. I'm uh, here in the state of North Carolina out of Hillsboro. Great. And then certainly last but not least at all, Dr. Craig. Hello, everyone. I'm Latanya Craig. I'm the Assistant Dean for Inclusive Excellence here at Purdue. Uh, so I'm, thank you for having me. And um, I look forward to having a conversation with Dr. Kennedy and uh, Dr. Kovacs today. So this is exciting. Great. So let's uh, dive on in. So what institutions among the three of you have a diversity requirement as a part of your curriculum? I can say at at Purdue, we do require, so we do have a a diversity and inclusion certificate program. And so our first year students that are coming into the program, they are required to complete the modules, which there are quite a few of them. And there are some students that go on to complete the full certificate, but all of our first year students have to complete the modules. And the pieces that they don't have to complete as far as getting the certificate is the community service pieces. There's a couple of things that they have to go out and do in order to complete the certificate. And so it takes a little bit more time, but we have quite a few students that will opt to finish that that program too. As a part of the curriculum, diversity is a part of our onboarding uh, curriculum. And so there's three stages within onboarding. Uh, onboarding is for a full week. Three of those days are focused on DNI work. One of the first days we talk about intercultural competency. The second day is about implicit bias. And the third day is on bystander training. So that happens the first week. And then it's also built into their VSAT class, which is veterinary skills and competencies. And so they will see me, the first and second year students will see me throughout the semesters giving the DNI sessions. Great. Uh, Susie, it looked like you were about to say something. So we don't actually, what I would 
call what I would call a formal requirement. However, in the course that I co-teach with Dr. Helen Engelke, the veterinary issues course, which I know you're familiar with because you've been a guest speaker. So that's just briefly, that course is a mandatory two-year course on public policy and social change. And within that course, we do talk about diversity and inclusion, and we, we talk about not just the, the statistics and kind of the impact on the profession, but we also do kind of some self-awareness training, looking at different perspectives and different populations and that. So, so for the past probably over 10 years now, we've had in the first semester them have a required class session, at least one class session where we talk about diversity and inclusion. Great, great. And Alan? Uh, yes, for us, our students, as we have our orientor- orientation for the onboarding process, we have a, we call a National Coalition Building Institutions workshop. It's a five-hour workshop that they participate in during orientation, looking at you know, differences, personal preferences, biases, prejudices, whatever you want to call them, and learning about each other and what and how those differences affect each other. So that's built into our orientation and the onboarding process for incoming students. After that, they move on into a requirement for each year. We have our students through their first three years have to attend at least one of what we call a cultural awareness module. These modules, they get to pick from a variety of opportunities that we offer they could be anywhere from a 50-minute uh, lunchtime uh, program that they choose to attend uh, to a you know, two- to three-hour after-evening program that they may choose to attend to get this diversity credit that they're required to do, uh, to do each year. But again, right now, it's only for our students that are going through the first three years, and they can do one of those of choice Uh, Once they've completed, they have to also uh, submit a reflection paper based on what it is that they attended and sharing their thoughts and whatever things they gained from that module that they chose. Great. So two notes. One, the reason why we are alive today is because Dr. Allen said, hey, we need another module. And so we had to figure out how to make that happen. But two, he has previously shown me some of the papers that folks have, have written specifically like when I've come down to North Carolina State University. And and they're just really interesting to kind of really kind of read the reflections on content and kind of what folks have to say and what are they thinking about afterwards. Sometimes they're not thinking about this content and sometimes they are, but it's a, it's a really, you know, reflective writing is such a key piece for the assessment part of these, this type of content. At each of the institutions, how many faculty are really kind of involved in the teaching of this? So I know um, Susie said that she co-teaches her course. And so for courses like, I mean, some of them, I guess, are online modules like at, at Purdue. But in terms of like the offerings that our office offered in person on ground or now, I guess, remotely, how many faculty are, are really kind of involved? Um, so we have faculty that will come to these things as participants, but not serving in an instructor role. So we do have something that's called our Critical Conversation Series, and that is where we invite the entire college faculty, staff, and students, because we do encourage everyone to to take a, in part in the certificate program. And so we have these professional development, uh, DEI workshops or series where those things can meet the requirements of completing the certificate. So we do have a nice amount of people who come to those, especially if you serve lunch. If you serve lunch, you know, you get a lot of people who will be there. But we typically draw in about 75 people for our critical conversation series. But for the most part, who's delivering those, it's normally me. Okay. Roughly, so when we started our cultural awareness modules back in 2005, we did, uh, we at that time had quite a bit of resource where just as Latanya said, we can provide lunch with them. And so we're having cultural awareness modules uh, that were, we provide a lunch that was reflective of the module. Say if we were presenting on Native American culture, we would have a Native American lunch available for 
a traditional Native American type lunch shop for the attendees and the participants. But mm-hmm. obviously, with resources um, getting thin, that has faded out. But we still, to answer your question, get uh, quite a few of our faculty and staff as well that will tend to attend our cultural awareness modules during their noon offerings, especially. Whether our faculty realize it or not, you know, we're all in some way participating in this effort to enhance and improve our diversity and inclusion at our college. So it's just a matter of you bringing to reality those who don't feel like they're engaged and involved that they are and getting them more proactive with it. But you know, of our 160 or so faculty that we have, we do find ways to engage most, if not all, in some way. Okay. And Susie? So we, well, primarily it's myself and Helen that teach the course, but we try to, we involve a lot of other faculty as guest speakers in the course. What we do, it's kind of two-part. We do the content related to diversity and inclusion that I mentioned that we do in the first semester, but we are constantly trying to make sure our course holistically is very inclusive. Language we use, discussions we have, we try to um, make our our guest speaker roster quite diverse. So there's a lot of intention behind the scenes there, but it plays out kind of, you know, in a way that that is a little more maybe seemingly passive. Mm-hmm. So, Alan, I'm going to pitch this question to you. What, just because, you know, you've been around more than a little bit. So, <laughs> more than a period of time. Being kind. <laughs> what has been the biggest challenge in kind of, one kind of getting these things into like the orientation, having the annual requirement in years one through three, like what, what is kind of, you know, has it been an uphill battle? And if so, what does that uphill battle look like? Oh, I mean, definitely. It's been a challenge in pretty much every angle you can turn. You know, diversity and inclusion work is, it's difficult work and change is extremely difficult for folks who are hired into our system under the idea that I'm coming here to teach or do research or, you know, for students, I'm coming here to learn veterinary medicine and to be told that, okay, well, this is something that you're going to have to do that's going to enhance your abilities to do your work better and to convince them that, okay, this is something that is going to help better themselves has been a challenge, especially when it's not, for example, directly related to giving a vaccine or a a medical treatment for some uh, reason. So shifting that culture, I'd say, or changing our culture has been the biggest challenge to incorporate diversity and inclusion in as something that is as important to our success as a community and to our students' success as uh, future practitioners it's been really challenging, but we're getting we're getting there. We're working hard. I'm fortunate enough to have seen quite a bit of change uh, happen in that direction since I first arrived at North Carolina State University back in 1995. And very thankful and appreciative that we're still pushing forward the way that we are because we could have quite easily, you know, taken our foot off the accelerator and gone backwards if uh, we if we would have let ourselves. Yeah, I mean, it, it, certainly we've seen a, a huge change during the time that I've, I've been around. This was 20 years ago. It seemed unthinkable that we would finally get to this place where there would actually be so many different opportunities to, to include things in the curriculum. Susie, what's, what's been your experience? I mean, you all have this content embedded in a required course. So, you know, um, was it difficult getting that kind of content infused in, a, in an embedded course? No, because having, you know, being the course leader, we have lots of autonomy. And so, so it, it wasn't, you know, I, I see a bigger challenge for us that might be unique to us. I'm not sure, maybe not in that we have. So currently, I believe we are second in terms of all the after Tuskegee for having the greatest URVM population of students. And so, so we like to pride ourselves on having a very diverse student body and faculty as well. But I think that, that that creates a challenge in that we feel complacent. Mm. And what I've seen is that kind of attitude like, oh, we've done a great job. And then it's kind of this false sense of accomplishment because it 
we don't focus on, you know, the inclusion piece, which is sure. the harder part. Sure. So we've got the numbers, we've got the seats, but it's the inclusion part that I think that we're lacking in being much more intentional about. And and so Latanya, well, what what's the upside? What are the opportunities that you see kind of currently and on the horizon for the inclusion of this content in the DVM curriculum? I actually see the challenges and the opportunities on the same side of the coin. So when you see that there are folks who may not be buying into the idea of, you know, what is diversity and inclusion and how does it apply to my work? There's an opportunity for engagement there. There's also an opportunity to find out where we are lacking. And so if there are areas where inclusion is not being practiced at its fullest extent, there are opportunities to talk about those things, call those things out and try to figure out a game plan on, you know, what do we do next? I think the inclusion piece is the hardest piece because people think, okay, we recruit, the numbers look great, but it is a day-to-day thing that you have to work at in the classroom, outside of the classroom, as simple as walking in the hallway and speaking and saying hi and smiling. Those things cannot be belittled, but it all plays a part into the experience of a student. And so from this the saying hi to their, their them being in the classroom and to the grade that they make and the efforts that they show in trying to get that grade, all of that plays into one. So I think there's always those opportunities because there's always those areas of improvement that has to be made. Mm-hmm. The upside of it is, you know, it, in this work, you, you do have to be patient <laughs> with people. It's not on your time and people are going to get it on their own time and it's not may not be as urgent as you'd like it to be. But you can't count anyone out in this work. And sometimes there's folks that we're like, you know what, that's just the way that they are. Well, it could be the, the way that they are, but it doesn't mean it has to be that way all the time. And so there have been surprises in this where people come around and you see things that you didn't think, like they said that, wow, that that's a little different, right? <laughs> so it's, it's good. It's good to see people finally get a grasp of the things that you have been talking about. So I think that, that, that those potential changes are always good to look forward to seeing. Yeah. I'm so glad that you brought up a really critical piece, and that is kind of just the informal day-to-day interactions. Because, you know, what we're talking about on the podcast is really kind of the formal curriculum, but we also have to acknowledge that there is an informal hidden curriculum as well, right? And that is your 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 climate at your institution. And that kind of also gets to Susie's point about that inclusion piece. For some of us, you know, speaking in the morning is a huge thing, right? Just culturally, it's a huge thing. I can go home to my my parents' house, spend the night, and if I haven't had my coffee yet, I'm not necessarily, you know, all there. But I better speak to my dad because otherwise there's going to be a lecture coming, right? And so so if I'm in a, a work environment, for me, sometimes that's also my expectation. Like, oh, okay, so are we going to have that acknowledgement of presence, right? And so some of these things happen kind of in the hallways. They do happen in the class with commentary. They happen, you know, on the way to lunch and, and, and those kinds of things. How all are you all thinking about, uh, Susie and Alan, the, the hidden curriculum? Piece. That's that's an interesting one. And I think that there we have a lot of opportunities at Western U by virtue of how our curriculum is designed. So we have a self-directed problem-based learning curriculum. So our students are learning their basic sciences through small groups, seven students and a facilitator. And then every eight weeks they change groups, new new student peers, new facilitator. And I think that because of the fact that we have one of the most diverse student groups, their exposure to each other, you know, they're not just sitting in a class, you know, engaged in a lecture, they are talking to each other every day. And so I think that exposure is part of what I would call, you know, passive or hidden curriculum, kind of just the process. And I think that that, how you measure that value, I don't know, but I think that in and of itself is extremely valuable. Yeah, I guess, uh, Lisa, my response would be, you know, we, one of the things we're trying to do as best we can is to bring that hidden curriculum to the forefront so that it's pretty clear and, you know, transparent. You know, one of the things that comes to mind, I asked uh, one of my colleagues that teaches anatomy, Dr. Matthew Gerard, who's very well loved by our students, to share with me one of the things that he did when we were, when he served as our diversity committee chair. 
and uh, integrating into the course outline a clear statement to our students, you know, letting them know. And you know, he sent that to me, and it, and it just clearly states how uh, the anatomy, the comparative anatomy course, they're committed to providing a welcoming and supportive environment for all cultures and individuals that they teach. And putting that just up front and forward into the curriculum and their objectives and their syllabus really sends a message that nothing to guess, you know, not hidden there at all. Yeah, we are. You know, you're asking a question about those things that we do that sort of send messages that we want to get across when it comes to diversity and inclusion. Yeah, uh, you know, hiring more diverse faculty so that we can let the students get a chance to see and learn from individuals that are different than them. And I grew to appreciate that. Okay, you know, okay, other individuals are capable and competent in these things that I've never had a chance for many of them to experience someone of that background teaching them. So those are, yes, maybe some of the little hidden things, but we're trying to you know, bring them to the forefront so that we can celebrate those differences and make people realize that, you know, this diversity and inclusion piece that we're pushing so hard at them is real and we're supportive of it and that it's actually helping. Yeah. Oh, I love the fact that, that you can just kind of add that statement to the syllabus. I think that that's a really low-hanging fruit, easy-peasy way of kind yeah. of putting it out there. It's really, so So, folks that are viewing this, there's there's one tip <laughs> that you can easily do. I really like, yeah. love that idea, and that's something we've discussed as well, building it into the syllabus or learning, issue, learning objectives. And I know, I believe at one point, Mike Chaddock had a kind of a template that he was willing to share with, with all the colleges, you know, and I think there's power in it coming from, you know, your own culture, your own community. But I think that that might serve as a nice start for people too. Great. So I want to ask all of you, what does success really look like in offering this content, right? So, you know, I am very transparent over the years. I used to be a really like, you know, moral imperative, (laughs) you know, like changing hearts and minds. And while I certainly still believe that, I haven't totally abandoned it. I absolutely, it's still a part of my core. A lot of times I really just, you know, my low bar is, can you bring your act right to work in school? (laughs) That's that's my low bar that's on the floor, just crawl over it. So, um, but what does success look like in offering this kind of content? What do we want to see and how do we measure it? What I would what I would love to see is that there are more people that are being more open to others and to difference and then also being being able to hear the work and understand how to apply the information that they've received to their day-to-day work. And I think a way in which you could measure that, one, you can measure some of that through your climate surveys that you do uh, within your college. How are people treating each other? Do people feel respected? Do people feel supported? Just the day-to-day interaction that you have with people. You can tell when you're walking past folks in the hallway. Again, I'm going back to that because as simple as it is, it tells you a lot. You can tell what the what the climate, what the energy feels like, just a day-to-day walk out of your office into the hallways. And when people feel so closed off where they don't feel like they can just say hi, you know, and you see that that is a pattern across the board, you have to pay attention to that because that's its own sort of metric. And so I think that when you, when you are, you're creating a space where people feel I don't like to really use the word safe, but if it's if it's a place where people feel empowered or it's a brave space where people can uh, speak to each other or feel like they can share anything with anyone, I think that all of that is a metric as to, you know, how well you're doing. And that's something that you can always continuously work upon. So, Alan, you have the reflective writing. So I'm assuming that's not graded. You kind of get the check mark that you did it, right? But but how do you look at some of those those essays, those reflective writing essays that you get back? How do you know that some that you know there's been a shift, a mind shift, maybe? Well, uh, for most of the ones that I get, the individuals are being pretty upfront and honest, which is what I hope for. And again, it's uh, just reflective of what Dr. Craig has just sort of mentioned in that you know, where individuals can feel comfortable or empowered to be themselves, number one, and 
you'll share the information that we're asking for. I always mm-hmm. uh, been of the mindset, you know, if you have a question, ask it. Well, don't ask that question if you don't, if you aren't ready for the answer that you're going to get, because individuals may tell you what they truly feel, and that could hurt individuals' feelings. But that's really not what we're about. We're about trying to get educated, trying to learn. So for me, you know, the successful pieces where we can all come together and get a chance to appreciate the differences that we have, learn from those differences, accept those differences, and try to, you know, follow that sort of platinum rule, as we uh, state, where we're treating folks the way that they tell us that they want to be treated instead of the way that we want to be treated. Because uh, that's what it all comes down to and trying to you know, get a community and a culture that's ultimately going to come together and be successful in solving the problems that we're there to work on. Yeah. When the culture shifts, when you get to that point, again, I agree, it's, it's difficult to measure, but but you also take your internal measurements, your climate and that, but, but also pay attention to the people who drop by. So those that come in, whether it's through, um, you know, interview process, you know, preview days, those kinds of things, people can tell if your, you know, culture is authentic and genuine. And, and so I think that, you know, having conversations with, with visitors is important as well. Yeah, the one other piece I'll add, Lisa, is that, you know, with those reflective papers, I've learned so much from the individuals as they have shared their thoughts, their opinions, their views on the subjects that they chose to attend for their learning cultural awareness modules. And it's just a great piece of information to be able to gather how individuals are thinking on these topics that we're presenting for these various modules. Yeah, I think that's what's what's been really interesting for me over the years when any of your schools and certainly others have invited me to come and participate in some of the co-curricular programs or programs that are, you know, formally in the curriculum. For me, it is that the students that want to chat afterwards <laughs> is, was one metric. Not that I'm, I'm hopeful that there's a crowd of students, but a lot of times those conversations tell me, frankly, how thirsty students are for this kind of content and looking for information about these intersections around diversity and veterinary medicine. And also, a lot of times, your students from underrepresented or marginalized backgrounds are also kind of rushing up to to say hi, because frankly, sometimes they feel alone. And your speakers have given voice to things that they're feeling. Yeah. I, I echo that. And I was actually going to mention that I, I pay close attention to the Q&A parts of our of our sessions. So when we do the critical conversation series, I'm paying attention to what faculty are asking. I'm paying attention to what students are asking because it's coming from, you know, it's, it's something they need an answer to because it's something that they're experiencing now or it's something that they experienced before, but they didn't necessarily know how to tackle it. And so and they, they're still looking for answers. And so it's my way of noting, OK, so maybe this is something that we need to talk about. We did a session on what if I say the wrong thing and the kinds of questions that came from that Q&A has helped to spark the next critical conversation series, which is how to have conversations with difficult people. And so because a lot of people were talking about having those difficult conversations with difficult people and it was hard to, to navigate that piece of it. And so now we're going to have another session on it. So a lot of the Q&As is telling on what folks are looking for. And many of them are saying the same thing if you you pay close attention to what they're saying. Oh, yeah. I I mean, I certainly learn a lot. And for me, that is kind of one of my climate snapshots, like what students are telling me during those, those kind of brief interactions. So my next question for each of you is, you know, a lot of folks I'm sure that are listening to this or will listen or watch are also kind of like, that's all great. So your speakers are getting some information. Folks are paying attention to the Q&A. You're wondering whether or not people are speaking in the hallway and all of that. That's all great. But we also know as educators, folks like real 
you know, numerical assessments, right? And so some of this is a little bit of pass fail with a, a continuum in the middle, right? What competencies do you think, you know, you're really trying to teach and or enhance and build on, you know, that, that you're doing in the curriculum? And Susie, because your course kind of covers a lot of different things, kind of, you know, tell us a, a little bit about kind of those, maybe the learning objectives for your course more broadly. Our learning objectives in in the course is is really about being able to look at issues, analyze them in a way that allows you to see different perspectives, different sides. We do a lot of stakeholder analysis and that that kind of thing. So, you know, it's again, it's one of those things that's really hard to measure. We we've um, we're doing a lot of what we call authentic assessments with the students. We've pretty much eliminated most examinations. We require them to do things like attend a city council meeting and do a reflective piece or, or write an op-ed for the paper, things that we want them to do when they when they graduate. You know, this COE standards, I think, have really given a kind of kick in the butt to everyone and in, in a way that I think is, is good because I think that we, and I'm including ourselves as well at Western, we've, we've become kind of complacent in, you know, if we... Include DNI content. We're thinking that will take care of itself. But I think if the assessment piece is the one we really have to work on, you know, and 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 kind of the outcomes. And so, so that's something that I'm hoping that we can all, you know, have that conversation together and help each other out. Because I'm sure that that we can learn from each other and best practices that are out there. One of the things I also wanted to mention about our curriculum in that when we do the problem-based learning is that every week the students go through a case and they learn all of their basic sciences within the context of that case. But the case is a story. And I, you know, I've told you this before, I'm a firm believer in stories and, and them being really powerful and breaking down barriers and biases and really getting to learn about other people. So one of the things we're doing moving forward, because we're actually going through a curriculum renewal and review process right now is to look at our PBL cases as an opportunity to tell richer stories and have them be more reflective of not just our student population, but the client population that they're going to see. And so I think that's a great way that we can manage to get that kind of inclusion piece into our curriculum. And that's, and they go through that the first two years, they'll have 64 cases by the time they enter their third year. And that's 64 opportunities to tell stories. So that's one thing I'm really excited about going forward. Yeah, that's really exciting. I think, well, with our, our current students, we, we are currently using and we're revisiting other assessment instruments. But we do use the IDI, which is the Intercultural Diversity Inventory. And we do that pre, we do that at the beginning during onboarding and then students retake the test in their fourth year um, so that we could see if there are major differences in their intercultural competency skills and what they've learned and uh, what they're aware of. And involved in that process is focus groups, which that piece was supposed to have happened prior to me getting here, but it's it's changed a little bit. So we're looking at alternative models uh, to look at a, of how we could do that. We do have students that are on, several students that are under, they're either through a grant or some sort of scholarship. In a part of that, they have these mentor meetings that they have to attend. And so we take that opportunity to ask specific questions during those one-on-one consultations with them. And one of the questions is asking about how do they perceive their sense of belonging? Um, how would they rank it? So we're constantly seeing in relation to the other classes what that looks like and do they feel like they are in a supportive environment? So that's a way that we can assess what's happening with how they feel like they're being um, supported uh, within their classroom workspace. And then we try to do that too with our incoming faculty that's coming in. So a part of our strategic plan uh, that just launched a, a couple of weeks ago the goal is to relook at our onboarding process for faculty and staff that's coming in because we typically have onboarding that's off campus and then they come back to our, our building and we need specific things because veterinary medicine, the culture is very different than anyone else. And so there are specific things that we would like to get it as a part of our, our onboarding process. So to have a, a needs assessment at the beginning, what is it that you feel that you need in order to be successful in this work and what you're about to do? And then to also to do a stay interview, what is it that is keeping you here? 
All right. And then if there is an issue where a person ends up leaving is to do an exit survey and to see if the things that was told to us at the beginning was met, if those expectations were met, because that may have played in a part of why they left. If they did not feel like they received the kind of support they felt they needed in order to do the job. So that will also help us in engaging the sense of belonging and whether or not they felt they could be successful in that space, given the resources that they received. Great. Awesome. Wonderful. Wonderful. I'll be sure to put in the show notes information, a link to more information about the IDI assessment tool. It's a really great tool. Purdue has been using it for a number of years and and has some really great data um, showing how students are building intercultural competencies over the years. So good on that. Alan, so for your colleagues at other institutions not represented on this on this podcast what would you tell them who as they're kind of trying to navigate this and and you know expand what they may be doing start doing something new you know every school is different this is one of the blessings and curses that i find <laughs> working with all of you is so exciting because everybody's doing so many different things but there's also 50 of you and you're all doing different <laughs> so, so what would you tell your colleagues? Yeah, that, that's a great question and a great point, Lisa, in that, you know, I, I always start by saying don't go in, you know, half-stepping and, you know, not thinking that you're going to have to commit to making the things happen that you claim that you want to happen, that if you're going to do it, go all in. Do it right. Do it right first time. You know, may not have to repeat some of the things, some of the mistakes and the things that others have experienced ourselves, especially at North Carolina, because I think we we were leading the way in a lot of ways and uh, taking on some of the diversity initiatives and the things that were tried that were uh, really challenging things at first. But really, I guess, bottom line, when it comes down to everything is to I'd recommend that they focus on what their specific needs are. I mean, what I'm doing and what we're doing um, at our various uh, colleges that may be working for us might not work, you know, at another institution. So we can pass on the successes that we've had, the best practices that have worked for us, but be ready to adjust them, be ready to focus on the things that need to be focused on at their specific institutions, because there is no cookie cutter here that's going to work in every situation. There are some things that we know that have been tried that will work successfully, but they're going to require resources and they've got to commit to resources first and foremost to make these uh, diversity and inclusion initiatives work. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and that's a great point because you mentioned NCBI training. You know, that that's yeah. not free. <laughs> it's not free. <laughs> it's, it's, it's not. And you, and you did our uh, CT Vivian basic race yeah. training, and that's not a free program. But I tell you, that program has gotten us the response, the, you know, the, the, the change that we need to have culturally. It, you know, touts a 92% institutional change for individuals that uh, participate in that. And, you know, we check with our folks that have gone and that's what we're getting. Uh, yeah. So tell get tell viewers a little bit about that program because I have been and it is, it's intense. <laughs> it, it is. And we just did it this past October again. I uh, had uh, several of our level administrators, the dean went through it. So it's, it's not for the light of heart. <laughs> The program is a two-day intense training off-site from campus. Oh, it used to be overnight stay. We don't do it as an overnight stay uh, now, but uh, you focus just on race and race-related issues for those two days that you're there in this workshop. And you learn things uh, about the challenges around race and race relations that you know, folks don't tend to want to talk about. And you individuals are put in positions where they have no choice but to talk about these things and learn about them to solve the challenges associated with them. So it's a great program. We've been doing it for most of the years that I was at North Carolina, have been here at North Carolina State University. Uh, We did take a short hiatus on offering it for a short while, but we bought it back and it is, uh, again, on track to do the things. And it's called Basic Race, uh, offered by Al Vivian out of Atlanta, Georgia. The program is worth every penny that you put into it because you get a whole lot more out of it than what you put into it as far as I'm concerned. 
Yeah, it's it's really a, a, a great program. And when I did it, it was still overnight out in the woods. There's nowhere to go. It's pretty dark. <laughs> like, and so you're just going to stay in there and chat. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> Most of the night. It was it was really, really great though. And I felt really bonded to those folks that that were in that cohort. So Latanya, so you know, what would you tell your colleagues? I, I think you you definitely gotta be uh, uh patient <laughs> in the process. Uh resources is definitely a key there. And I, I think sometimes we we downplay how much resources are needed. You need it in uh, financial resources and you also need it in human resources to help do this work. So definitely be very intentional about how you're going to use those resources in your pitch and asking for those resources. And I would err on more than less because it's there. there's, there's always constantly uh, reminders of things that, that needs to happen that should be a part of that agenda in, in trying to get the resources that you need to do the work. But I would definitely say just be patient with the process. Look out uh, to see what your colleagues are doing at other institutions. Are there ways in which you can collaborate with each other? There's no sense in reinventing the wheel. So if you know that there is or if there are folks that are at another institution that are doing similar work, invite them to your campus to share some of that information. I think there's all there's all kinds of ways in which we could share information. It we're all in this together. We all want the same outcome. So I'm willing to share as much as I can. And I'm letting you all know that too, with my colleagues that are on this this call with us. I know that I am a resource. I look to you all as a resource too. And so, you know, look out for uh, anything that I have, I, I'll give and, and vice versa. So Susie. Yeah. Well, I would say two things. It needs to be prioritized or it won't happen. Um, I think we all have experienced that. And it's everyone's job. It's not just one person's. It's not just one committee's job. It's everyone's job. And so those are pretty much the two messages I would start with. One of the things I wanted to mention, just as we're going through this trend, as we see with the distributed model, because we have the distributed model where our students are out in third and fourth year at the different clinics. What we started, we piloted almost two years ago now is um, preceptor training in diversity and inclusion. And I think that if we can, you know, take a look at that, develop something, I think that would be really helpful because we can control what the students experience in our own, you know, brick and mortar walls. But once they get out there, you know, we've had experiences that that uh, we think it would be very helpful if receptors kind of were on board with with this part of the curriculum. So I just wanted to put a plug for that. Absolutely. So important. I think that that the survey that a few of us worked on after the first climate survey, we did a project looking very specifically at LGBT student experience at the colleges with respect to climate. And one of the things that we found was that students identifying as LGBT plus, you know, maybe there was the first year there might have been a little kind of like, okay, is this the space for me? Second year, which a lot of folks um, think um, can be academically one of the most challenging years in the DVM program was actually the year that they felt the most comfortable that things were going the best at their respective institution. Third year, things are starting to get a little rocky, but by the end of third, the third year, we found that LGBT students, their anxiety levels were very, very, very high in the first phase of the survey. And so when we did interviews in the follow-up piece, we found that this idea of going to a new site every two, four, six weeks or whatever, you know, the interval is, was um, really disconcerting because they had to make a decision about how authentic to be every two, four, six weeks and whether or not them being authentically themselves was going to be a problem for the person who was grading them. Yeah. Right. And that became a very, it was a real wake up call in that project, kind of really understanding the need to do some training related to externships, preceptorships, and what those expectations are for behavior as well for those folks who are reporting back on performance for these students. Because there was certainly a population that was really stressed out about it. They weren't stressed out about their performance. They were just, they were stressed out about 
just being who they are performing, right? And so, so your point is really well taken that there's um, a real need for us to, to also think about educational opportunities for those folks who are also a part of educating and training our students outside of the traditional university setting. Mm-hmm. Can I add two, two other yeah. things to that too? I, I think it's important for us and even in people who are uh, first being introduced to this work is that no one can ever master it because there are so many changes that happen from day to day because people think, okay, I've learned about this group and that's all I need to know. And it doesn't work like that. Groups are not monolithic. And so it's, it's not work that you can master, but you can work towards it every day to master it. But it, you can never quite do that. And so uh, that's just something that, that people need to remember too, that there's always going to be some things that you don't know. And it's okay to say, you know what, I don't know this, but you know, this is an area that I probably need to look more into so that I can enhance my own intercultural competence uh, because that's not something that I'm familiar with. And it's okay to say that. And I think that people will trust you even more uh, to want to share more with you when you are, you know, you're being your authentic self by saying, this is something that is out of my expertise. And this is something that I probably need to look into. And then the other piece is that for folks to remember that this is not an an added thing that you are doing, but it's a part of what you should always be doing. It should always be threaded through the conversation. And even though it might not be specific to the medical work or that that particular shot that you have to get, diversity is is, is empowered. It's, it's in there somewhere. All right. So who are you giving that shot to? How would they respond? What does that, how does that client respond? You know, communication is a big piece that I don't think we've talked about it here, but that's a big piece being able to engage in multicultural and communication and, um, and be able to be empathetic to, to certain groups, whether you agree with some of their beliefs or not, but still being able to just provide good customer service. And that comes with engaging in multicultural communication. Great points. Great points. So one last question for the gang here before we wrap up. And that is, so we've talked about what you'll tell your colleagues in-house. So what are you going to tell the practitioners (laughs) outside of the institution who are like, "Uh, my day, you know, back in my day, we didn't have to worry about all of this diversity stuff. You just treat people and you you focus on the goat and you know, like you know <laughs> like what do you what do you tell those folks outside who are like this has nothing to do with veterinary medicine? Alan. <laughs> yeah, I, I have to say one of the one of the great surprises for me personally is that you know, when I, I uh, meet a new practitioner, whether it's at a conference, whether I'm you know, doing a referral consult, you know, or, or whatever it may be, that when you ask me what is it that I do, and I, you know, just seize that moment and just start telling them, all right, I'm a director for diversity and inclusion, and they look at me like I'm an alien sometimes first, like, well, okay, what do you mean you're a director for diversity and inclusion? I thought you were a sheep goat llama vet kind of deal when you were here. Just thought, well, I, I hit them from the other angle with the surprise approach. But once we start having that conversation about what it is that I do and the significance behind it, they seem to get it much faster than I thought that one would. Mm-hmm. As a matter of fact, when I start uh, having those conversations with a lot of our alum from NC State that knew me when I initially came there as a resident and focused on the clinical stuff that I taught them. And they hear, all right, you're doing diversity work. Wow, that's neat. You know, I wish that that had happened is what I get from a lot of them while I was there. Uh, So it's not as, I guess, a a big, a, a bad challenge in any way as one would have thought from the standpoint of them not agreeing and wanting to get it. I think that uh, folks, once you give them a chance to hear, understand, and appreciate what it is that you're doing and that we're doing as a profession to try to include uh, more groups from other backgrounds and cultures, they tend to agree and appreciate and want it. That's great. So I see some head nods from Latanya and Susie. Susie? I would love to say the same things I would tell my peers, that it's everyone's job and um, we have to prioritize it. I think if there are people that are resistant to it, again, I think stories are very powerful. If there any way we can, you know, have those conversations, 
I like to use the analogy that my professor in grad school, Dr. Daryl Smith, uses, and she uses the analogy of technology. You know, it's coming whether you like it or not. So you're going to have to deal with it. Yeah. Um, and and that's very true. I mean, we don't want it to be a, a kind of a force, right? Forcing people. But I think it's just, you know, thinking of creative ways to get people to have their own aha moments as well. I think those would be very powerful. Yeah. And last but certainly not least, Anya. I I echo what my colleagues have just said. Um, And I also say that I think a lot of the resistance, if there is resistance, if it does come, I I think it's coming from a place of not really knowing what to expect from it. So I think that just reminding um, those individuals of opportunities for growth, you know, in making the business case for diversity, people care about the bottom line. And so if we're talking about you owning your own practice, what would it look like if you brought in more clients that um, that you could interact with? And what kinds of things that could, could you do in your practice now to bring in different groups? So is your application that has to be filled out, is it only in English? Does it take into account that English might be a second language to some others? Do you have someone on staff that could possibly speak a different language? You know, what what does your what does your walls look like in your client space? How comfortable do people feel? Have, have you done a customer service survey to kind of see what people feel like they would like to have when they are coming to visit? And have you acted on the results when you saw it? So I think a lot of that will help to uh, create opportunities for growth where they can say, you know what, I'd never thought about that, but I can see how that could bring in more people. So so just gauging it or, or talking about it in a way where there's a constant opportunities for growth and how that could impact their bottom line. I think they'll listen if you're coming at it from that angle, if from nowhere else. Awesome. That's a, a great way for us to kind of leave that discussion there. This has been a really great discussion. I hope that for our viewers, it's also been both educational and entertaining. So thank you all, Latanya, Alan, and Susie, for joining me uh, <laughs> on this discussion as uh, we're all isolating in various <laughs> <laughs> thank you for inviting us. Thank yeah, you so thank much. you, Lisa, for doing it. Absolutely. And so this has been another episode of AAVMC's Diversity and Inclusion On Air podcast. You can find the podcast on just about all podcast apps, uh, Apple, Google, Stitcher, you name it, we should be there. And you can certainly also find us on Facebook as AAVMC's Diversity and Inclusion On Air podcast. I am usually there posting all kinds of good information about diversity in higher education, diversity specifically in vet med and kind of a bit of things that kind of all run run the gamut and pull this, as Latanya said, kind of pulling that thread all the way through our, our kind of daily veterinary lives. So with that, we will call this the end of another show. Thank you so much. And we will see you all next time. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.